You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Well, as we're about halfway through chapter 20, we're in this period of the book of Luke where there's a trilogy of, of trick questions brought before Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we studied the question about John the Baptist that the religious leaders brought him. Jesus, John the Baptist, you know, would you say his ministry was from men or from God? And, uh, and actually, that was, that was the question that Jesus asked them, and they weren't able to answer it. Um, then we have a, a question about taxes that we're going to read about today. And then you have uh, a question about the resurrection that we're going to read about today. And so as we read this period in, in the, really the passion week of Jesus' life, the last two days of his life, and you hear these questions brought by the religious leaders, you just ask yourself, why did these religious leaders have such a fever pitch against Jesus? Why were they so set on his downfall and asking him these, these critic, you know, a question that critics would ask? What triggered this? And you can go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter five, where Jesus was in Capernaum and his ministry was growing and the multitudes were following him. And he went into a house to teach. And so many people packed into this house that they were bursting out of the doors and they were trying to hear through the windows. And you guys all know the story that a group of friends had a paralyzed buddy And so they put this friend on a stretcher and took him to the house. And there was no way to get the stretcher into the house because there were so many people. So they took the man up on the roof. And as Jesus was teaching, they start hearing kind of a scraping up on the roof and and start hearing palm leaves fall off the top of the roof. And pretty soon tiles are crashing off the roof. Pretty soon sunlight's peeking through the ceiling and then faces are showing through and it's bigger and bigger. All of a sudden there's a full-blown stretcher coming down, being lowered down through the roof. And as this paralyzed man lay before Jesus, Jesus' first thing he said to this man was be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Well, Luke tells us that in that house, there was kind of a panel of religious teachers sitting there listening quizzically. They were listening and and critically, you know, observing the scenes. And when they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you, they, they grew very intense and they grew very angry. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? This man blasphemes. You know, the thing about that is that their theology was right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's, that's a good, valid point. But their conclusion was bad because they knew what they were saying in their heart was that this man must be God. But their heart didn't want to receive it. And so Jesus said, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? I don't know. What do you guys think? (laughs) You know, if Jesus were to say your sins are forgiven you, well, I could say that today. Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Pew, 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 pew. You know, forgiven, 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 you know. Um. Now, if somebody was paralyzed in here and I went up and I said, rise up and walk, that guy better rise up and walk, you know, or it's going to be quite obvious that I really don't have any power whatsoever. 
And so Jesus did the easier thing by saying your sins are forgiven you. But then he went on and did the more difficult thing by having the man rise up and walk and be made whole. And by doing that, he proved to these religious leaders that I do have the authority to forgive sins because I have the power to raise a man up who has no, who had no legs, who had no arms. And now he's made whole again. And so what these men were confronted with that day was, could it be possible that this man is God in the form of a Galilean carpenter? Could it be possible? And Jesus says, oh, it is possible. But as we've studied the last few weeks, their issue was no longer that of a theological stance, but now their issue was that of moral. Am I really going to bow the knee to Jesus even if I'm convinced that he's God? Or do I love my sin too much? Those passing pleasures that only end in death. Is it worth it? Well, these men had decided, not yet. I'm not ready yet. In fact, I don't want to bow to this guy. In fact, I'd rather see him put to death. And so that brings us to Luke chapter 20, where for so long they were just angry with Jesus and the thing that he would save sinners, that he would eat with sinners, that he had come to seek and save the lost. And so here in Luke 20, you know, they're in the temple and they're hiding behind pillars and they're kind of whispering to to each other. How are we going to get him this time? Anybody got any good ideas? How can we trick him? And so today that's exactly what happens as they confront him with a tricky tax question. Let's read verses 19 through 21. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach things rightly. You do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. So here the critics try to match wits with Jesus and are found as dimwits. They bring little portions of the Bible to Jesus to try and trick him. You guys, you never want to have a Bible knowledge contest with the author of the Bible, the Bible answer man. You'll lose. You never want to have a theological debate with the Theo. It never ends good on your side. Years ago, a Toledo, Ohio woman shot and killed her boyfriend because they had an argument over different interpretations of the Bible. Well, it could have ended deadly for Jesus here as a debate ensues regarding taxes. You know, and they come to Jesus in verse 21. They say, we know that you say and teach rightly. You know, they're pretending to be righteous and they come to him with flattery, but it's all lip service. What they said was true, But it's possible to say the best things with the worst motives. (laughs) And that's exactly what they were doing. They were just buttering Jesus up before they would roast him. And man, you can just sense the cynicism in their voice. Matthew's gospel tells us that it was two different groups of people who asked this question. It was the Pharisees who were loyal to Israel, Jews loyal to Israel, and the Herodians were part of this group. These Herodians were Jews that supported Herod and thus Rome. 
Now, normally you could never get a Pharisee and a Herodian in the same room together. They were always butting heads. How could you trade on Israel by following Rome and Caesar? You're a blasphemer and ah, well, you're a, you know, and they just constantly were butting head, never in a room together. And yet here we see them united with the common cause of somehow putting this Galilean so-and-so man to death. Let's do what we can, even if it means coming together. And you guys have all heard that the enemy of my enemy is my best friend. And that was this case. Well, I hate you, but let's get, you know, let's hug, you know, let's, at least for a little while, let's be buddies. And so the question they asked is, verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a very good question. And man, this is a, this is a stumper. I don't know how I would have answered it. If Jesus would have said, no, don't pay taxes anymore, then the Herodians would have Jesus arrested for being a traitor against Rome. But if Jesus would have said, sure, just keep paying taxes. What's the big deal? The Pharisees would have Jesus shunned, kicked out of the temple, uh, considered an idolater and, and loyal to Caesar, which would have caused some sort of worship towards Caesar. And so Jesus would have been put to death by the Jews. One way or another, Jesus is in big trouble between the Romans and the Jews here. And so they've carefully formulated their question so that any way he answered, he was in a catch-22. You know, you know what a catch-22 is. You catch it if you don't, and you catch it if you do. You know, either way he answers, he's going to catch it. Well, not really, because he's God, and he's pretty smart, and he has the best answer that we're going to read. In verse 23, he perceived their craftiness, kind of like the little snake in the garden, you know, so sly. And he said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Man, you've got to understand that this is an ingenious response. He sees the, dupl uh, the duplicity in these men's question. He sees their hearts, that they're two-faced. The fact that they, you know, that the Pharisees claimed that they were disengaged from Caesar and yet they had a denarius in his pocket that was Caesar's money. Now notice Jesus didn't even have any money. He could have been like, well, hold on a second. Let me get my money out here. You know, we all know Jesus is rich and drives a Cadillac, you know, <laughs> let me just, you know, Jesus is like, well, does anybody have any money? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And then he uses example with somebody else's money and he asks for a denarius on one side of this coin, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar, son of God. On the other side of the coin, it said, Pontifus Maximus, meaning he's the chief priest. Let me see this coin. And then in verse 25, he says, uh, or verse 24, <clears throat> uh, Show me whose image is on it, whose inscription. They answered Caesar's, verse 25, and he said to them, Render therefore the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Give to Caesar the things that are his, and give to God the things that are his. Whoever's image is on the coin owns the coin. Caesar's image is on the coin, so he owns the coin. And the power of Caesar stretched to wherever his coin was currency. 
You know, today in America, you can't buy anything with a peso, you know, or with a Hungarian forint or an Israeli shekel or a Brazilian hay You might be able to do some cute little coin trading or something like that, but that's about the end of it. Brazil has no power in America. Neither does Hungary. Neither does Israel. Their currency doesn't go this far. And so Jesus is saying, you have his coin in your pocket, so you're submitting to his governing authority. And so now I don't have to say yes or no to your question. You answered it yourself. (laughs) He says, since you have this money, you're obeying Caesar's throne in the realm of politics. It's a political thing. But you have to remember that there's one final throne that's the final authority in your life. The throne of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, but it's also here in Prineville, in Crook County, in Oregon. And we're part of a federal government. We're to obey these secular authorities because they've been set in place by God. And Daniel says that the, the, the lines of the countries have been ordained by God so that it might glorify him. His purposes are so huge, he uses government. And submission to the throne of God demands submission to the state. Well, the Jews were saying, we don't belong here. We're Jewish. Jewish, we don't belong a part of this. But Jesus says, no, you are, you're underneath the authority that God has put over you right now. And you're to pay the tax to whom it's due. Now flip over to Romans chapter 13. Hopefully you guys all know Romans 13 verse 1 just starts out talking about us submitting to the governing authorities around us. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister to an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're to obey the governing authorities that have been put in place over our lives. They're ministers of God. Well, why should I pay taxes? Do you like driving on a smooth road? Do you like taking your kid to the park? Do you like having a national guard that will defend you from, you know, the forces of evil that would come against our country? (laughs) 
That's why we pay taxes. He's God's minister. You know, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, he um, was telling the story of getting pulled over one day. And as the officer came up to his window, uh, he kind of, you know, partly trying to butter the officer up and partly trying to, you know, to just minister to the officer. He quoted this section out of Romans 13. He said, sir, do you know that you're God's minister to me for good? (laughs) And the officer, apparently a Christian, knowing Romans 13, continued the verse saying, But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. (laughs) And he handed him his ticket, and they were both on their ways. (laughs) Not only are we to pay taxes to our governing authorities, you know, our, our dollar has George Washington's face. Let's give it back to Washington. Not only are we to pay taxes, but Romans 13 tells us we're to be obedient to the laws of the land. The best laws and the hardest laws to follow. There's some ridiculous laws out there. In Oxford, Ohio, it's unlawful for a woman to appear in public while unshaven. This includes her legs and her face. In New York State, a fine of $25 can be levied for flirting. It's an old law that prohibits men from turning around in any city street and looking at a woman in that way. The first offense is a $25 fine, but the second conviction for this crime calls for the violating male to be forced to wear a pair of horse blinders wherever and whenever he goes outside for a stroll. In Nebraska, it's not legal for a tavern owner to serve beer unless a nice kettle of soup is also brewing. In Kentucky, females shall not appear in bathing suits on any highway within the state. But that was repealed January 1st, 1975, somewhere in the hippie movement era. They had to get rid of that one. In Illinois... A state law requires that a man's female companion shall call him master while out on a date. The law does not apply to married couples. I was wondering when that process, apparently you guys don't have a problem with that. That's okay. Here in Oregon, it's against the law for a wedding ceremony to be performed in a skating rink. And that's why Kurt and Megan had theirs at the church yesterday, because I just had to say, sorry, it's against the law. We can't do it at the skate rink. Um, In Klamath Falls, my hometown, it's illegal to walk down a sidewalk and knock a snake's head off with your cane. Some tells me if you have a cane, you're not agile enough to be busting snakes' heads off, but I don't know. No offense to those with canes. You guys will love this one. In Marion, Oregon... Ministers are forbidden from eating garlic or onions before delivering a sermon. (laughs) So no matter how ridiculous the law, we need to obey our kings and we need to pray for our kings. Is the state asking anything of you that if you obey, it would make you a violator of the law of God? No, not right now. You know, will they murder your baby if you have more than one, like some countries? No. Do they forbid you to preach the gospel, like some countries? No. We are very blessed. 
However, if it does come down to these allegiances to the throne of God and the throne of the state, if these allegiances ever collide, what side do we side on? It's almost a rhetorical question. (laughs) The side of Jesus. And we see this displayed for us in Acts. Flip over to Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Acts chapter 5, man, revival is happening in Jerusalem. Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and had all his palms. This is what Peter did say. And you guys know the story. He ended up healing the, the lame man there. And thousands of people got saved. But the Jewish leaders hated that. And after a few times of arresting these men and commanding that they not preach, in verse 27 here in Acts 5, it says, when they brought them... They set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Ultimately, it comes down to we are obedient to the word of God. We're to obey our parents. But if your parents are ever asking you to do something that is sin, then you must be your, your allegiance must fall on the word of God and obedience to Christ. But if you're going to take a stand against the government for the word of God, you better make darn sure that the word is on your side. Or you're disobeying the scriptures. You know, praise the Lord, we have such freedom in this country, but there's, you know, a bill that keeps being put before the uh, various states, actually, it's different states it comes before, that pastors should not be able to preach against homosexuality from the pulpits. And if they do, they should be put in jail. And I know that there's some, you know, Canada, I think parts of Canada have passed that. Brazil passed that in a part of Brazil. And states are fighting to to pass that. It's funny to me because just states keep turning down the the marriage laws. And, um, but man, if it comes down to it, I got to stay loyal to the word. And you guys might be getting my sermons through telecast from the Prineville Penitentiary. I don't know, but... Because whoever fills my place won't be teaching on that. I don't know. Um, anyways, in verse 25, it, it comes down to, you know, whose image is on this coin? You know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar's coin had Caesar's image on it. But we're made in God's image. We have God's image on our heart. So our heart should be God's. We have him stamped on us, his seal of the spirit guaranteeing our salvation, Ephesians tells us. And so like Paul said in Athens, it's in God that we live and move and have our being. We're stamped by him. We need to be given over completely to him. In this statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's, He's saying that Caesar is not as great as God, but he's a servant of God. 
And this appeals to the Jews. He's also saying that Caesar's government is a valid government, which is a message to the Herodians. And so Jesus's answer was a stroke of genius. People marveled then and said, you spoke well. And people marvel now. R. Kent Hughes wrote this. The statement made by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. And aren't you proud that it was our God that said that? You know, all those little Buddha statues, they don't even talk, you know. But our God spoke words that nations are like, yeah, we'll use that in our law. <laughs> you know, render to Caesar. Um, so, so proud of who our God is. This simple answer to the question has changed the way that man looks at his relationship with government ever since. Now, notice that Jesus seems to be issuing a call to himself and the people who hear him as well. Because in just two days, he's going to be arrested and executed, even though he had done nothing wrong. And he's the one who lives and set the example for us. Is your heart his today? You were made in his image. Have you given yourself to him? In verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him something else. And so just like much of you read about battles, or if you've ever watched a war movie, you know, oftentimes soldiers are overrun and they fight off the enemy. And then, you know, they, they think that they're getting a breather. And then all of a sudden, another wave of the enemy comes on them. And then another wave of the enemy. And that's what's happening with Jesus. He barely gets a, a breath in before the next tricky question comes on and he's attacked. They're examining the Passover lamb before it's going to be slain for their sins. And so here come the Sadducees. And maybe you don't really know who the Sadducees are. Awesome that Luke tells us who. They deny that there is a resurrection. And the schoolboy answer on how to remember this, some of you know it. Some of you don't think it's funny anymore. I still love it every time I say it. But the schoolboy answer is that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so now you're getting it. <laughs> you're learning all these people. The Sadducees were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or miracles. And so it's funny, they'd ask this question. Here's their question, verse 28 through 33. They said, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. The story is told of three first-time dads waiting in the maternity ward 
at a hospital in Minneapolis. The nurse came in and said, Mr. Smith, your wife has just had twins. And he said, great, I'm a ticket seller for the Minnesota twins and my wife just had twins. This is incredible. The nurse came in again and said, Mr. Jones, you have triplets. Great. I work for 3M based here in Minneapolis. I have triplets and I work for 3M. This is incredible. The third man, Mr. Brown, didn't even wait for the nurse to come in. He grabbed his coat and started running out the door. (laughs) Wait, where are you going? Said Mr. Jones. You haven't even heard what your wife had. Mr. Brown replied, replied, I'm a truck driver for 7-Up and I'm getting out of here. (laughs) So here we have seven brothers and they're all dying off one by one. If I was brother number five or six, I'd be pretty suspicious. Maybe having the dogs taste the eggs in the morning or something like that. But better watch what's going on. And when the older brother got married, you bet there was some heavy-duty counseling by the younger brothers on who they were marrying because it was a potential bride for them. Some of you have seen the old Western musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Blessed and beautiful, here we have seven husbands for one bride. Believe it or not, we went on a pastor's retreat in uh, March with all the pastors in Corvallis. And we were bored one night, so all of us pastors watched Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That was just fun fact number 5,876 of Rory's life. And so for this woman, it was probably a great relief for her when this last man finally died off. And she could go to a different family of only childs and healthy living. But, um, but to understand the tangle web that these, this question has... It's helpful to understand a bit more of the times. The Sadducees didn't value the rest of the Old Testament as much as they valued the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so they they would only accept proof of a resurrection based upon prove it to me out of the Pentateuch. The Pharisees were always unable to offer a compelling answer. And so this was always kind of like a trump card that the Sadducees would use. In fact, a, a Jewish scholar from the late 1800s, Alfred Eldersheim, said that the attacks on the resurrection by the heathens, the heretics, and the Sadducees was so strong that it was a marvel that the Pharisees continued to hold on to this doctrine. The Pharisees didn't even know how to prove that there was a resurrection from their own Bible that they upheld. And so the Sadducees had this one question. You know those questions on the playground that little bully kids always have? You know, the Sadducee bully kids would always throw it in front of the Pharisee little kids. You know, my dad's bigger than your dad. Prove the resurrection from the Pentateuch. You know, how dare you? I'm going <laughs> to... And so the question here is, is what the smart guys like to call reductio ad absurdium from the Latin. In other words, the reduction to the absurd... You use these arguments all the time, making ridiculous ridiculous assumptions based on the implications seeming absurd. In other words, there can't be a heaven because what if a guy had seven wives? You know, what's he going to do when they get to heaven? Just walk around all day. Are you my wife? Or what if a wife had seven? You know, so therefore it must not. You know, that's ridiculous assumptions or assertions. 
And so they bring it to him anyways. And Jesus' answer is so awesome. Matthew's gospel says that before Jesus says what he said in Luke, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. So first of all, the the Pharisees or Sadducees actually erred in two ways. Number one, they didn't know their Bible. And he's going to show them from Moses's writings, the proof of the afterlife. Number two, they didn't have a grasp of who God was specifically in his power, that he's the creator. And if he can make man out of dust, surely he can rise him from the dead. You know, the the Sadducees could only conceive of a future world being exactly like this one. But the scriptures say, I has not seen nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God is preparing for those that love him. We have no clue what heaven's going to be. We just can't even begin. Paul said when he died and came back to life that if he were to talk about it, he would be in sin. He just wouldn't be able to speak it forth rightly. Now, um, it's, it's like looking through a foggy window and trying to be able to see what's out there in full detail. We just can't understand. These guys didn't know who God was or what he was capable of. And they haven't been reading their Bible. And so often as men and women try to push you up into a corner, they don't know either one of these things, the scripture or the power of God. And I had a discussion with a gentleman this week where it came down to where I was trying to show him and reason with him from the scriptures. And he was randomly shotgun firing random scriptures out of context. And I just said, look, man, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, or more importantly, the holiness of God. And you're erring in this way. And I just said it very lovingly, but I, and I told him, this is where we're going to be on Sunday. And these words of Jesus come to my mind. You need to read your Bible for its entirety. And with Jesus, the resurrection is an absolute non-negotiable issue. They're going to, people raise from the dead and we get his answer here in verse 34. So uh, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, No marriage in heaven, Jesus says. It's not that we won't know our spouse in heaven or the close relationships that we've formed on earth, but it's that all of our energy, all of our love that we would put towards our wife or our husband is now going to be focused towards God in worship. And people are so confused on this. They just don't know the scriptures and they obviously don't read Luke chapter 20. Uh, I was at a friend's wedding that was done by a justice of the peace. And people asked me yesterday as I did Kurt and Megan's wedding, they had all the men were wearing camouflage vests and they wore camouflage hats at the end. And they were asking, is this the most redneck wedding you've ever done? And I said, no, actually I went to a friend's wedding where there was an open bar during the ceremony. And I'll never forget people getting up and getting Kerr's lights and cracking them open and walking back and sitting down. I was like, oh my goodness, this is very interesting. But at this wedding, 
the justice of the peace or whoever he was. I'll never forget him saying this. Your love and marriage will last until even God disappears. <laughs> I was like, burk, burk, burk. <laughs> 20, 40, 60. Um, what's that leather book you have up there in your hand? I don't think you've read it. <laughs> you know, Leon Morris wrote in his commentary, human relationships are largely a matter of that place and time. They are therefore bound to be different when neither of these things apply in heaven. There's no referential element of time and place. Here on earth, we're constantly, where am I? What am I doing? What time is it? Who am I with? Where am I? What am I doing? What time is it? Who am I with? So on and so forth. To where I have incredible friends that I consider like brothers. But when they moved out of Corvallis or I moved out of Prineville, I just haven't talked to them. It's not that I don't absolutely love them. It's just that I'm just, I'm in a different place and time in my life. And my energies are going towards something else. And that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Because the dimensions of eternity and the dimensions of present time earth, it's just different. And it's hard for us to picture. So it's not that we won't recognize each other. Uh, You can still sit together in heaven if you want to. I'm not saying anything like that. But one of the purposes of marriage also is for reproduction. And there won't be need of that in heaven. And uh, in verse 36, it says, Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. So just like the angels not dying and, and not, you know, they're, they're sexless, basically. And they're like sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, flip over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians it's just over to the right, a few books. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. And man, I hope you guys own First Corinthians 15 verse 12. I hope you're champions of it. Because it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And I can't wait for a couple of weeks when we read about Jesus' resurrection because it's one of my favorite Bible studies to do. But in First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable Verse 20, but now Christ has been risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so we're called here in Luke chapter 20, sons of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And just as Adam was our forefather, and through his sin, all of us obtained a a sinful nature, 
So through Jesus's victory on the cross and resurrection from the dead, do we inherit through that man the resurrection status? (laughs) We're going to rise from the dead. We're sons of the resurrection. In verse 37, Jesus takes them to the source that they want to hear from. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. God doesn't say in in the Exodus passage there, oh, Moses, I was the God of Abraham. God rest his soul. Rest his peace. I was the God of Abraham. I remember his life here. That was so long ago. Haven't seen him for... No, I am currently the God of Abraham. Right now, Isaac is alive. I'm his God. I'm with him. I'm, I'm spending time with him right now. I'm the God of Jacob. And not to mention... If Abraham was just going to die, get buried in the earth and become worm food, then why would God put any effort into telling him, hey, don't worry, old man, you know, you're going to have so many kids. It's going to be like a nation, a huge inheritance and blah, 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 blah. What do I care? I'm just about to keel over and die. You know, it doesn't matter. That's all temporary. Then they're going to die and they're going to die. It doesn't matter. It's worthless. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if death ends everything for us, then we are the most miserable people, especially as Christians. Look how much time we're wasting on this Sunday morning. We could be watching NASCAR. Come on. But no, we're here because we believe that God is real and we're going to spend eternity with him. And it's our joy to be with him. Any intelligent person understands That if the end of this life is it and we become worm food, then we're a mockery. You know, and this is all part of the existentialism philosophy that was embraced throughout the 1960s. That only right here and what each person does in and of themselves defines the world to themselves. You know, it's all about however you exist right now. And most existentialists were atheists. And one of those men, Jean-Paul Sartre, he was a French existentialist. And in 1980, he wrote in his diary, just reflecting his thoughts of his own mortality and these issues that confronted him, that he's going to die. And what's going to happen after that? He wrote this in his diary. The idea that there is no purpose, only personal pity ends for which we fight. We make little revolutions, but there's no goal for mankind. One cannot think such things. They tempt you incessantly, especially if you are old and think, oh, well, I'll be dead at five years at the most. In fact, I think 10, but it might well be in five. In any case, the world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. That's what I shall resist. I know that I shall die in hope But that hope needs foundation. This man was at the end of his life and he wrote, maybe five. I think for me, it'll probably be 10 years before I go. He died a week later. And I hope he had the foundation for that hope. You know, something that defines us as Christians is that we have hope. All throughout the New Testament, we're given hope, the word says, 
by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Or we're saved in this hope. Or we need to be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. Hope, 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 hope. I like that word. You know, I like having hope. I got high hopes. (laughs) But we need to have a foundation for that hope. You can't just, well, I'm thinking good, so hopefully it'll happen. No, we can know for certain that when we die, we'll be raised from the dead. But if in this life only we have hope, we of all men are the most pitiable. And as Jesus answered that, everyone said, well said, Jesus. Well said, especially the Pharisees, because they were saying, good job, way to stick it to the Sadducees, you know. We finally got our answer that we were looking for. But we as Christians are defined by hope. Richard Baxter said, you've not done well by your people if you do not prepare them to die. You know, all of us know that our life is but a vapor. And we don't know, you know, you might think, well, I'm young, I got a long time. We don't know that. We need to be prepared that any moment we could stand before God and be held accountable. One man wrote to, uh, in his book, Holy Dying, he wrote, my Lord, it's a great art to die well. And because we all know that we're going to die someday, oh, what thought we put into temporary one day things, the weddings, you know, we just put so much thought and time into them or their graduation day and all this, you know, we just don't put a lot of time into thinking about what our last day is going to look like. And man, I want my last day to be a celebration time. You know, like a bird in a cage who's sitting in his cage thinking, you know, this is a pretty comfortable life. You know, got my little swing here all day long. I just get to swing and I got my little drinking dish and my little pellets over here and a little newspaper gets changed once a day, you know, and this is just good. But you know what? It sure looks good out there. I want to get out of here. I want to go spread my wings. Now we need to prepare ourselves for going and meeting and being with God. Preparation on our part. You know, no one likes the subject per se, but man, if you know where you're going, it's a glorious subject. It's a glorious subject. Charles Hodge said, it's important when we come to die, we have nothing to do but die. You know, don't let it be that that you're caught off guard. Don't let it be that you have so much unconfessed sin and so much baggage and you don't even know where you're going when you die. That it's this tormentive process that could end horribly. But today, just say, you know what? Jesus, you say, if I believe in you and receive you into my life as my Lord and I allow your blood to wash over me in in a figurative sense and cleanse me and, and Lord, that you'll take away my sins, you'll help me to live for you and then I'll go to heaven when I die. Lord, I receive that and I want to receive that now so that when I see the car coming at me and it could possibly be the end, I know where I'm going. And it's not a problem for me if it's the end. Man, one man, Adoniram Judson said, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the heart of a schoolboy bounding away from school. Man, don't you remember those days, you know, 2.55 on a Friday afternoon? Please, just, and then the bell rings and you're like, I'm out of here, you know? (laughs) Man, oh, that day, oh, Lord, I'm going to get to see you. I'm going to get to be in paradise with you. 
Let's go ahead and have the worship team come on up. You know, in the scriptures, it says that, you know, we're to count it all joy when we fall into various trials or we're going through hard times. You know, that we're to trust that God is doing a work in us. We might not understand it, but God is doing a work in us. But what an incredible thought that Jesus allows us to go through trials so that we'll want to be with him in paradise all the more. And we'll have a hope that one day there's going to be no more tears. You know, one day we're just going to get to be in, in, in heaven with Jesus. No more pain. No more sorrow. If you were going to die today, would you die well? Do you have that hope of heaven? And today you know that you can. You can know that you have that hope. And Lord, I pray right now just for the hearts in this room that you'd soften them. Lord, you'd break them. That you'd show them their deep need for you. What a beautiful thing, Lord, that we were created in your image. Lord, we have your stamp on us. And Lord, I just pray for the people in this room that your stamp is on them, but they're living for a whole nother master. And Lord, that today they would surrender to you, give their lives to you. Lord, show them their sin. Show them how they've broken not only the laws here in this land, but your laws. They've lusted in their hearts. They've worshipped other people and other things and hobbies and objects. They've coveted their neighbor's possessions, perhaps even their neighbor's wife lusting in their hearts and committing adultery. They've hated people and thus murdering them like you say, Lord. And Lord, we know that there's no murderers in heaven or there's no adulterers allowed into heaven. There's no idolaters or covetous men, liars or backstabbers allowed into heaven, but only those who've been washed clean by your blood. As you say, I'll remember their sins no more. And Lord, where there are those in this room that you remember their sins and they're going to have to give an account to you. Lord, just move on their hearts right now to surrender to you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.